0: I think sometimes the kind of stats and the difficult situation that are in regarding you know, climate change, sustainability, this, that, and the other feel so overwhelming and so out of our control as an individual. But actually, as a consumer, we have an extraordinary amount of power because there are seven billion of us. And if we stop buying the stuff that we don't want to see and the stuff that we don't want made that way, you know, it will cease to exist. You know, if we didn't buy it, it wouldn't be there.
1: Welcome to Fortnum's Hungry Minds podcast with me, Felicity Blunt. Today, I'm joined by first-generation millennial farmer and rising star, Julius Roberts. Oozing charm and with a humble approach to life on the farm, Julius describes himself as a cook, farmer and gardener on a journey towards self-sufficiency. In 2016, he gave up working at successful London restaurant Noble Rot, firstly for a small holding in rural Suffolk, then last year a farm in Dorset. He's amassed 90,000 followers on Instagram as he shares tales of farm life alongside multiple goats, pigs, chickens and his two dogs. In 2020, The Times named him as one of the best farmer foodies to follow on Instagram. His aim is simple to educate his audience on topics including animal welfare and seasonal cooking. His down-to-earth approach gives fans a taste of foraged produce and mouth-watering dishes and the animal magic that is raising his mischievous goats and singing or howling with his lurchers, Loki and Zephyr. So without further delay, a very big hello to Julius. Thanks
0: so much for having me, Felicity. Honoured to be here.
1: Uh, we are so very excited to have you. You were one of the guests we were most anticipating for the podcast, partly because everybody involved in the podcast is obsessed with your Instagram. Obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I Thank think you. we are not alone. You have 90,000 followers on the Instagram. And I think the combination, particularly during lockdown, of seeing somebody out and about looking obscenely healthy sort of communing with nature enjoying some interesting sort of I mean your goats are hilarious I love the fact that they seem to use you as their personal climbing frame Yeah, but the cooking you've got the uh, yeah do they they must get heavier (laughs) and heavier and heavier
0: as they get older it is they've got so much weight put onto these tiny little feet it's quite something But when they're young, it's a lovely massage.
1: Yeah, lovely. And then suddenly, it's sort of like when your child's become a teenager and they sort of, you know, they're not going, could could you pick me up? And you're like, not anymore. And
0: and as they get older, they get so extraordinarily nimble. So I'll be walking in there with my feed bucket, feeding everyone, and suddenly you'll get a kind of 30 kilo goat just fly onto your back, knock me over. (laughs) I mean, the scratches I've had in the past. It's madness.
1: How many goats do you have now? What have you got? What's your tribe? I think I'm about 20. I can't. Did you ever think that you were going to be somebody who would end up with 20 goats? Is that something no, you imagine?
0: And the goats thing was mental, the, the whole goat thing. I went to this wheeler dealer, you know, real <laughs> sort of epitome <laughs> of a wheel de- wheeler dealer farmer. Lovely guy, but he just, he absolutely took me for a ride. He saw this kind of fresh faced Londoner and knew that he was going to get a, a pocket full. <laughs> and I went to buy, you know, maybe two goats and somehow he persuaded me to go home with 17 goats.
1: 17 goats? Oh I didn't my. have
0: a fence. I didn't have a hut.
1: Did he deliver them or did you just have to load them into the car? Kind of like Melissa McCarthy and Bridesmaids when she ends up with I seven t- Labradors. <laughs> that was you, but with 17 goats.
0: I took a few in the car. I've had a few car journeys with goats, which is always... Um, a ride, <laughs> um, but no, he turned up with his big lorry and kind of went. Good luck, and off-
1: just offloaded them and went off into the sunset. Okay, well, I'm, I'm gonna. I wanted to actually really start this podcast by sort of talking about your journey to where you are now with your with your many many goats because I I love actually that your route into your current life feels feels like it just it took its own path and it isn't something that felt necessarily planned because as I understand it you originally studied sculpture at Brighton is that right how long did you study sculpture for
0: I studied sculpture for four years
1: and you were always um, interested in art and always interested, yeah. therefore, in I was one of those
0: kids who, you know, some people at school really took a long time to know what they wanted to do. I was always quite decided on the art thing and quite relaxed about that. Studied in London for a year after school at City and Guilds and had an amazing time. And then went to Brighton, which was epic. Yeah. <laughs> such a lovely city. Amazing I love people, Brighton. attitude.
1: Great food as well. Amazing food in
0: Brighton. Great food. Great food. And yeah, I kind of lived and breathed art. I really did. But it was a very contemporary course. And, you know, I was making great big installation sculptures that took up rooms. And when I finished uni, I kind of got back to London and just I didn't I I didn't know how I was going to make it work without being in kind of ridiculous amounts of debt and kind of just worrying too much. So mum persuaded me to go and get a job in this local cafe. And that kind of started me on this amazing course. So
1: Shepherds Bush Cafe. And what what was the job? Was it waiting tables? Was it cooking?
0: I, I, I really did kind of start washing pots and pans. You know, zero experience. I hadn't gone to cooking school. It was this restaurant that must have changed hands kind of 11 times in seven years. It just didn't work for the area. And when I got there, in the space of three months, two head chef's came through about five sous chefs it was just in so much flux that enabled me to go quite quickly from you know being a kind of kitchen porter to actually cooking and I'd always been you know sitting by my granny on the ag as a kid and obsessed with cooking so I did you know I did know what I was talking about and had a real passion for it and I think they saw that and let me climb the ranks quite fast.
1: So how long were you there at that from you know porter to chef what was that length of time?
0: Oh, I mean, probably six months, which might, might take some people three years. I got really lucky. It was so fortuitous. I got on really well with the general manager there. And we had a bit of a bond. And he said, mate, you've got to get out of here. I'm going to go and start working at this place, Noble Rot. I'm helping them set it up. Why don't you come for an interview?
1: Okay. And so, so six months in one restaurant, then you went to Noble Rod, interviewed as yeah. what? what? What were you? So with your CV of six months experience, what were you then interviewing for at Noble Rod?
0: I was interviewing for, what do you call it? A commie chef.
1: Explain what that is, because I, I have heard that phrase and even I'm not completely clear on what that means.
0: A commie chef is pretty kind of bottom of the ladder, but you're okay. not washing pots and pans, you really are cooking. What was great about Noble Rock was because it was a fledgling restaurant, it literally just opened. They only had a few chefs, so I actually had a real role and I was on the cold section. So I was doing all of their kind of bread making, all of their cold starters, oyster shucking. I mean, I oh. must have shucked about a million oysters while I was there.
1: Did you? I actually shucked an oyster last weekend and I, st- I basically dug it straight into the palm of my hand. I mean, I'm definitely not expert. Did you become, are you just, you could do it in your I'm sleep good. Now. I'm <laughs> good.
0: But, the, you know, you really do get quite infected cuts from oyster shells because they're quite yeah. dirty and you get bits of shell in you. So I had my fair share over the time. Yeah.
1: And the hours were long, right? I mean, really long.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was very lucky starting at a fledgling restaurant in that they gave me quite a lot of responsibility straight away because it was quite understaffed and things like that. And... It meant that I was really cooking proper stuff early on and they were teaching me so much. It was a baptism of fire. When it worked, it was the best thing ever. When it didn't, oh my God, (laughs) it really was, you know, the, the cliche of all kind of restaurant kitchens and the stress was extreme.
1: And how many years were you there for?
0: I was there for kind of just under a year. Okay.
1: And then how quickly into the process of, and, and obviously appreciating everything that you're learning, sort of building on everything that you have sort of learned within your family cooking. It must have been that your knowledge just expanded incredibly quickly.
0: Yeah. The chefs there, you know, we really were, you're like comrades, you know, it's quite army, like you're doing 18 hour shifts with these guys four days, five days a week And they did teach me so much about seasoning, I think was the kind of biggest thing I learned, really balancing flavours using salt and acidity and whatever it may be. And I slowly kind of rose up there, got more responsibility and loved it and lived and breathed it. But I could feel my body just kind of imploding on itself and... I'm quite a health conscious, freedom kind of centric person. And I just knew that, you know, it was going to start causing issues. There's quite a lot of, there's quite a hedonistic lifestyle that goes with chefing because your hours are so extreme.
1: Sort of like late night comedy. You know, you finish so late, like you're sort of so high, you've got to do something.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's a Monday night. So who else are you going to hang out with than the other chefs? But it was, it, it was incredible. But I did see all these producers turning up in the morning with their beautiful boxes of tomatoes and artichokes or you know a whole lamb or whatever it may be and they were just healthy they were brown they were bright eyed <laughs> <laughs> they looked they looked kind of happy
1: another species of human you're like wow.
0: yeah yeah i was sort of green and limp um and they were tanned and bright eyed so i thought wow. Oh that doesn't look too bad. And I think the biggest thing that maybe the restaurant did, you know, they taught me about seasonality, which was, you know, the kind of code we lived by at Noble Rot. Um, they taught me about season seasoning, And then it was this kind of hunger for the best produce possible. You know, if you if you find that perfect tomato, so much of your work is already done for you as a chef. It was amazing how much effort went into finding these incredible producers. And it really taught me about things like animal welfare and, you know, biodynamic growing and, you know, nature led farming and things like that. So it really kind of lit that fire inside me.
1: I think what's been interesting about lockdown and and food produce is how many of the businesses that we never had direct contact with, if we like to buy our food, you can actually now access without having to go through even your local grocer, you can actually sort of buy online direct, whether it's fish or meat or vegetables, that all of these incredible producers are sort of actually much more accessible than they ever were. And I think people are being very canny about what they buy and... Let's face it, there's very little to do for those of us who are sort of, you know, in lockdown in London or in cities, apart from eat and drink. So and you don't go out to eat anymore. So suddenly, what you are buying to put on your plate, I think, has taken on this sort of added investment from yeah, us, the consumer.
0: I, I think that couldn't be true. I think, you know, it's been awful, but there's a lot of really good lessons and positive things to come out of this lockdown. I think it's going to teach us some great stuff. And I think that reconnection to food has been amazing. I think this understanding that if we kind of abuse Mother Nature, she's going to bite back and that we need to make some changes. I think, I think there's some real positivity to it. I think humans needed a bit of a slap and...
1: We've had kind of the two punch, haven't we? But yeah, Yeah. I think there probably is a recalibration to come. And for you, in some, you made your decision to sort of make a change of life, obviously way before anybody had ever sort of understood, you know, the idea of COVID nineteen being anything that was relevant to them. So, what was it that sort of was your tipping point? What led you to think, okay, actually, this is not for me. This doesn't. This is not where I want to be in my life.
0: I don't. I don't. I think it was a slow rumbling rather than an immediate decision, but. You know, it just was those hours and that stress and, you know, the cuts, the bruises, the shouting. um, You know, when a restaurant sings, it really sings and it is the funnest time of your life. But when it when it's going wrong, it is (laughs) it's really tough. And I wasn't experienced enough. I hadn't seen the kind of best side maybe of kitchens. And it just, you know, affected me. I had this option to make that change you know, I think that, you know, I was really lucky that we had this little cottage in the countryside and, you know, that massively enabled me to make that big leap.
1: So did you move, you moved, you moved, yeah. you knew there was a cottage, there was a small holding and, yeah. but a small holding can be various versions of a small holding. It can be something that's already mature intended. Was it just a piece of land? What did you was, turn up it to? It was a
0: cottage with a field. Yeah. Okay. It was, it, there was no small holding there yet. It was a huge leap. I'd been so inspired by Hugh Fanley and, you know, all sorts of cooking shows as a kid. Uh, it was the middle of winter, which was difficult in that I think the natural journey would be to go and try and grow some veg. But it, there was no growing to be had at the time when I decided to leave London. Um, so I went and bought myself four pigs, built a very rickety fence. I'll never forget hammering in the posts in the kind of freezing um, snowy weather. Cast Um, iron
1: ground as well. It's not exactly the, yeah, the easiest.
0: No, it was, it was quite something, but just fell in love with these little piglets. It blew my mind. It blew my mind.
1: So you, so was was the first thing you did was like, I'm going to go get some pigs. That's what I'm going to do. Okay.
0: This lady turned up, she brought them in her car. Okay this so then piglets, you, this is this is the way you one back. travels
1: with animals yeah. you're like okay that's how I'm going to do it yeah
0: um she she kind of she took them out of the car like little wheelbarrows so she held their back legs and kind of walked them into the to the pig oh pig, my God, that's pig amazing. Kind of pen that I built and they were just kind of magnetic to us they you know they turned up she, she was definitely she was a smallholder like me but focused specifically on pigs and they turned up to this lovely bit of wool, wood that I've given them. You know, the ground was covered in acorns and oak leaves oh. and they just started digging and they were thrilled. And my Pig dogs paradise. were playing with them. Yeah, it was, inc- <laughs> you know, I mean, I spent, you know, those first kind of three months I was spending, you know, half my day with them every day and just learning so much about animals and how sensitive they are and how similar to us they are and
1: and pigs are deeply intelligent i mean there's the whole thing about pigs and octopus and things that actually they're very 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 smart aren't they
0: yeah no they really are they really are i mean if there's no difference to those pigs and my dogs having that kind of decision that they were eventually going to end up as food started you know really teaching me some stuff about animal welfare and the importance of sourcing meat and how we look after them and produce it
1: and you were always clear that these you were going to raise the pigs, and they would end up as, as meat. That that was so. What you know, if you're spending half your day with an animal, and it's the first time that you've done it, and maybe I'm wrong, but I imagine in that first, we have this tendency, don't we, to sort of humanise or project human emotion onto animals, um, whether it's our you yeah. know felines or canines or you know. Anything. They have
0: it though. You know, I'm yeah. convinced. You know, it's not just projection; it really does exist.
1: So, what was that emotional journey like?
0: Brutal. It was brutal. I mean, quite scarring. I don't think I'll ever forget taking them to the abattoir on that day. I had them for two years. You know, they had a really long life. I could go and, you know, take my book down there, lie down on the floor and lean against one and sit there reading in the wood in the summer. You know, we used to let them out and have a run around the farm. (laughs) One time they ran really far and I've never (laughs) been so stressed in my life. Um, But, you know, I adored them. You know, I really did as a pet. And then the the day came where I knew I you know, had to, had to make a change. They started getting too big. We didn't have the land to kind of rotate them. You can't really keep animals on the same patch for too long. So it was, it was quite an, an inevitable decision. Lured them into the back of the trailer, which felt very kind of awful, this like tricking them with food to walk into the trailer to this inevitable doom. That was really tough and felt wrong. And there's this moment where they kind of feet leave their lovely muddy patch and around this hard metal floor and you just know that it's not right, you know? I mean, yeah. it, make, it makes my heart flutter. No, I can not sound... it. yeah. It was an hour drive to the abattoir and you're just thinking, you know, stuck in your head the whole way there. Is this right? What am I doing? Is
1: so you right? were what still questioning doing? it all the way up until the point. That... Oh my
0: God, yeah, absolutely. Oh, it got harder and harder and harder the closer yeah. it got.
1: I think what is so moving hearing you talk about this, though, is that we have lost the habit of connecting meat and fish and any produce actually with its origins or life ultimately it's too off. you know it's shrink wrapped it's bubble wrapped you know you get it it's cut it's divided it doesn't really bear any resemblance does it anymore to the thing that it was originally unless you're somebody you know prone to kind of going home with like a tongue from the butcher it's it's a you know we d- we have sort of almost i would think deliberately dis- distanced ourselves from what you have had to go through and and actually i just wonder as well in the sort of mass farming that that producing on such a scale that 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 also in some way it becomes much less personal, doesn't it? If you have four hundred pigs to four yeah, pigs, they become
0: numbers rather than but, individuals.
1: Yeah, and when you are in your position and actually you can tell them apart, you know each of their characteristics. Snap,
0: crackle, pop, and Albie. <laughs>
1: and Albie, there you go. <laughs> And you remember them and you can still sort of call them to mind. It becomes much more like, I suppose, the relationship we have even with the domestic pets, you know, your childhood pets that you sort of do remember very specifically for their characteristics. But I'm sure you don't, for all that it was horribly traumatic, that must have taught you so much that you still implement today about the respect that you pay the animals and the sort of the debt. Yes. that you It was so them.
0: real. It was so raw. You know, it was such a journey. And, you know, I still eat meat. It didn't, I, I think everyone on Instagram thought this might be it. This might be the moment he becomes vegetarian. He won't be able to do it. And, you know, I got really close. I really did. And, and still, every time I go to the abattoir, I am battling with indecision and, you know, my thoughts around it. But I think there is a kind of right way to do it. They had an extraordinary life. I went to a family-run, tiny abattoir. Their death was really quick and really kind um if you can call it kind but you know it was sensitively done um we we fed them Guinness Guinness oats and honey in the morning and they you know they you can get them quite kind of relaxed and out of it it was as good as it could be and I think you know when meat when meat comes from that background i d- I don't think it's wrong you know a hawk isn't wrong for hunting a mice or eating a mice you know I think you know we are still part of a food chain but the mass side of meat and the industrial farming and the treating animals as numbers and machines and you know having a cow just being pumped dry of its milk and you know having its calves stolen from it the minute they're born. You know, that is so wrong. It's and the it's, level
1: of imbalance there is is, as you say, so so wrong. And there is
0: you know That's but, my mission is to try yeah. and reconnect those dots. That it is so wrong to do that, but there is a right way to do it. Cheap food Cheap meat just has to stop some, some, somehow, and the answer is just by eating less.
1: Well, I think that also answers so many things, and I know that you know I've spoken to other people about that. The amount of meat that we have come to accept as normal is completely not normal. Like, the, the, you do not have to have meat on your plate, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. And the fact that we sort of orchestrate our plate around, okay, it's a lamb chop, and what am I going to put with it? I think that is becoming outdated now. And I have seen people really moving away from that, this idea that you need to have a cut of meat with which to accompany and everything else becomes a side. And I think that that in itself and just the the interest people have in different cultures of food, different types of eating. and, And actually, again, you know, that even if it's talking about meat free Mondays, you know, things that have sort of become quite, you know, have gone beyond being fashionable to just being
0: just normal. No change is happening. There is. There's definitely hope. I, I couldn't agree more.
1: Do you feel like when you're on Instagram and you're taught, is that partly why you're on Instagram? And that because you you removed yourself from sort of the London rat race, as it were, but you've chosen to remain in touch with actually a much larger public via Instagram. And is it that in some way that you are showcasing what is possible and and hoping to sort of educate through what you yourself are learning along the way?
0: Yeah. it wasn't my initial reason for leaving you know I wanted to kind of re-educate myself and find a new path but slowly as I started to fall in love with those pigs and have to make those hard decisions and see the right way you know versus the wrong way you know surrounded by other farmers you know doing things very differently to how I was you know I knew that I wanted to kind of show and promote and teach, you know, not preach, you know, kind of get people to fall in love with my beautiful goats and maybe connect the dot when they're in the supermarket and go, oh, free range or free range organic or whatever it might be, you know, so it's to kind of just reconnect those dots because we're so removed from our food uh, in cities. You know, I knew it. I knew so little. I realized how ignorant I was. And they lie to us. You know, <laughs> the supermarket is such a big lie. The packaging is a lie that, you know, it's, it's all a big trick.
1: Yeah, I, I was going to ask about that. And actually, do you think that is going to change? Is that something that we as the public have to put pressure on to really see change rather than yeah. sort of expecting that yeah. to just be enforced by anybody else?
0: I think sometimes the kind of stats and the difficult situation that are in regarding you know, climate change, sustainability, this, that and the other, feel so overwhelming and so out of our control as an individual. But actually, as a consumer, we have an extraordinary amount of power because there are 7 billion of us. And if we stop buying the stuff that we don't want to see and the stuff that we don't ma- want made that way, you know, it will cease to exist. If, yeah. you know, if we didn't buy, it, it wouldn't be there.
1: We spoke to Anna Jones actually on this podcast and she said there were some terrifying stats about how many thoughts or decisions you make in any one day as a human being. It's 15,000. I mean, it's thousands. And how many of those probably apply to food? And actually in that, just say you have 100 thoughts about food a day, because you probably do. Each of those is an opportunity to to push a lever and to make a positive decision. Um, And I think it is is something that actually we just have to accept is possible within our day to day. It might feel like everybody's sort of asking for sort of a huge amount of change. But even if you make these small micro changes, if you're talking about 7 billion people, as you say.
0: A lot of small changes make one very big change.
1: Yeah. So from the pigs and that awful, I mean, I feel, God, I feel terrible. Actually, I feel like I've traumatized you making you talk about it. I'm really sorry.
0: No, it's <laughs> but good. That, you know, it's I, good. I, I like sharing that story because it—you know it's important to me
1: you went did you have to wait for the for that moment or did you drop them off and leave how does that work
0: no 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 you're you're right there they didn't want to get out the trailer you know they you know there's they, they do know these animals are very clever um so I took them out and what happened happened we don't need to go into that and I went to pay and in the five minutes that I was paying it was all done and dusted it blew me away how quick it was. There was no waiting. You know, I timed it perfectly. I'd booked a slot. And he, you know, he said, do you want to go see them? I was like, what? What do you mean go see them? Um, he said, yeah, no, they're all, you know, all done. And I went and saw and he showed me my pigs next to some other pigs. And the difference blew me away. They were kind of huge. The meat was red, not white. And, you know, he said, these are the healthiest pigs I've ever seen. And kind of asked how I'd been looking after them. And, the, you know, they were kind of, you know, these Abitual guys who are pretty hard, hard guys who, you know, quite closed off in that they're doing that all day, every day. They kind of have to put some barriers up and they, you know, they were all kind of quite, you know, crowding around and quite amazed by it.
1: That's wonderful.
0: So That's may, amazing. Yeah. You know, that it kind of it was a big tick for me. I was like, oh, at least I've done something right here. But I was shattered, you know, driving home. You know, I I was tearing up in the car and I still had two. So I I, I had four pigs. I only took two. So I went back and had a big cuddle with them, which was, you know, kind of weird. But I just needed it. Of course, yeah.
1: And then, well, from the pigs, what what came next? Had you started already to build in chickens and goats at that point?
0: No, no, pigs, I think I needed to do that to know where I was and what I was going to do next. And it affirmed a lot of things and, yeah, it, you know, pushed me on the journey to expand and get more animals. The next thing I got was some chickens. <laughs> and I love my chickens. They're also unbelievably clever and so personal. And you have your favourites and the ones that really get you and you know, we will hop into the car and sit next to you sometimes and Love constantly walking into the house and, you know, doing all my hoovering for me, pecking at all the, you know, this, that and the other on the kitchen Oh God, floor. that's
1: genius. They come to my house. We have a lot of children at my house. <laughs> a lot of rice and pasta gets thrown. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, they'd be brilliant. They're the ultimate hoover. And chickens then turned into veg and I started growing food, which is it's, that's my least favorite part. Growing veg is really difficult. Is
1: that? I mean, that. Okay, so full confession. I've done a vegetable patch with my husband, and we've had kind of in a. We had some great success one year, and then effectively, probably I think after we. Which sort of is not paid enough attention to it. And it was so labour intensive. And we were, it was in Westchester, in New York. so It was really hot at times. You'd be out there kind of tilling your quite small field. Did you find it easy to grow? Clearly, I'm a colossal failure in trying to grow my own veg and would have to sort of take advice from you. But what did you start with? And did it feel seamless? Did you know what earth? I think there's just so much that just- I...
0: Just like with the pigs, I just threw myself into the deep end. I'm quite a kind of all in. Learn by your mistakes. You know, I'm always up for getting it wrong because it's the best way to learn. And I, I think I had an amazing first year. I bought some um, soil from a local farmer who hadn't heat treated it, so it was effectively I paid for millions of weeds to be put on top of my garden. And it was, it was, oh. you know, stressful and difficult and. Blood, sweat, and tears went into that garden, but you know I kind of love that process. What was your and, first um,
1: planting? What did you first? What season did you start in?
0: I so I, so I moved in November to Suffolk, bought the pigs, then got chickens in probably January, February, and I was ready to start building and growing the garden by March, April. So probably peas, you know, peas and broad beans and potatoes and onions and things like that. Um, and
1: now do you grow everything? Everything that you eat, you've
0: grown. Not everything. No, no, no. Um, in the spring, summer and autumn, I'm pretty self-sufficient. You know, once the peas and the broad beans and the things like that get going, you know, maybe from May to November, I can eat almost every day just from the garden and from my freezer. Um, <laughs> oh, God, is
1: there a lot of like, you've got to get your produce in, you've got to freeze. Have you got a massive freezer filled with stuff yeah. that, yeah.
0: Yeah, got a chest freezer.
1: Yeah. It's so labour intensive. But so satisfying equally when you take out your spring peas that you've frozen and that you grew
0: yourself. Yeah, no, it's the best. The rewards outweigh the kind of trials and stress that go into it. But there's moments where you um, (laughs) you do question it. You know, there's winter. I've just moved from Suffolk to Dorset and I've never known rain like it in my life. It's been relentless.
1: What effect has that had then on your planting and your day-to-day life? I think more like
0: emotionally my mood just this never-ending kind of sea of grey and wet weather and being held back from being outside has been difficult but a great learning curve you know it's a different way of managing the animals and now that I've just spent the whole morning outside in the garden. My nails are black.
1: Yeah, and you look <laughs> very—you look nicely wider. toasted. You're getting that sort of, you know, got some vitamin D happening. It's good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All my goats are kind of getting wider and wider. It's about to be lambing and kidding season. So you, you really pay for it in winter, the farming and country lifestyle. But it, you more than make up for it in spring, summer and autumn.
1: What prompted the move then to Dorset? At what point did you feel that you need, was it more, need more space? space? Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Where we were in Suffolk is quite close to London and land up there was just very expensive. We've got lots of brilliant cousins down here. My dad's mum is down here. So more family, more space. It's very rural. It's kind of proper countryside down here, whereas we were quite belty in Suffolk. You know, incredible farm shops, all sorts of reasons. And grass. The grass here doesn't stop growing. So it's amazing for the animals. You know, the sheep have never been happier. And I can now, you know, I'm now you know, not just self-sufficient, but able to do some amazing stuff with nature and, you know, improving the biodiversity and...
1: Oh, please tell me about that. So what are you doing in that zone?
0: So we, the local Dorset Wildlife Trust guy down here is just brilliant. He's called Nick Gray. He's this tall, lanky, thin as a bean guy with big golden Goldilocks curls and says, <laughs> you know, fair play to everything. He's got all <laughs> these catchphrases. And we're doing... Um, A big kind of learning thing that's happened from the move is that where we were in Suffolk, it wasn't as farmy as it is down here. I'm now in the kind of major farming zone. And so my neighbour and lots of my neighbours are proper industrial farmers, which is quite confronting in that, you know, we've obviously got very different ideas about, about how things should be done. So... There's quite an amazing opportunity with a few neighbours to kind of using our land that are adjacent to each other, create a lovely nature belt to kind of contrast this quite intensive farming that's going on. And so we're doing a big kind of not rewilding as such because I am still farming a land, but I've got such a low stocking density that the animals are improving and a part of the habitat here rather than kind of just sucking sucking it dry and so we're doing lots of like meadow restorations uh, woodland pasture tree planting putting all the ancient hedges back so we've gone back in time you can go on you know old maps and go back to the 80s and see what hedges used to be here mm-hmm. and we're going to replant them all sorts.
1: Do you find so in terms of finding those seeds or just those plants? How are you aware of sort of how much we've lost in your search, or is it actually that these things are are still here but just neglected or sort of in smaller and smaller corners of England?
0: They're here and they're really struggling, so it's really important to kind of where they are, protect them, and you know boost them. And so, for instance, with the meadow that we're re-establishing. We're getting what's called donor hay, where someone else who has an incredible field is going to cut their hay, and you, you basically just lay that hay on our land, and the seeds from his meadow are going to be the see. seedlings for our new meadow.
1: So, that cross pollination is what you're really encouraging with your neighbours?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of sharing, a lot of sharing, and creating kind of pathways between our lands so that animals can roam freely without necessarily crossing over into the quite, you know tough neighbouring farms. Um, I was going to
1: ask, with the with the neighbouring farms, and you described it as confronting, how how accepting have they been of you and of your standards and your approach to what you're doing?
0: I think I've probably got to prove myself first. I think they probably think I'm some kind of bumbling ex-Londoner who has no idea what he's talking about. Well, wait the till they
1: see your pigs though. You, know. <laughs> <laughs> you could serve them no, a we, very good we joint.
0: Get, you know, we get on. They'd be nothing but nice and so helpful. And You know, hopefully I'm much more understanding of them and their struggle. You know, they're so invested in this way of farming. The government have promoted it. They have subsidised it. They're kind of in this very sicky situation because of a whole slew of different decisions over time. You know, they work so hard, farmers, and they're so stressed. And they're constantly watching the flux of their profit versus loss margins, you know, every day. Um, So I'm very understanding and sympathetic and kind of aware of...
1: The stress of that just must be enormous, mustn't it? I mean, you see it, you only really see it, I think, when you suddenly see somebody being interviewed on the news and they're talking about, I guess, you know, what a supermarket will pay for their milk,
0: and it's crushing. No, it's difficult. But then, then, then I walk through one of my fields in the summer and every footstep, 15 butterflies will explode and moths and, you know, there's barn owls hunting it, there's voles and dormouse everywhere. And I cross into one of their fields, you know, on a walk with my dogs and there's nothing. There's just grass and every single weed has been obliterated. Every single hedge is cut to within an inch of its life. Every field margin is, you know, squeezing out nature as much as possible to kind of, you know, rape the land of all it's worth. And you know, that's really difficult when you can kind of literally see how much death and loss has happened. So it's tough. It's tough. You know, I, I'm definitely having to kind of pick my walks because I can get quite, um, you can get quite down from
1: yeah. It. And also to see that contrast, I mean, that marked contrast literally across a boundary wall is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yes, it's massive.
0: Nature in the spring and summer is just buzzing with life. And to see how sterile some fields and areas of land can be is really distressing.
1: Have you managed to find a community of people who are in the industry you're in who feel as you do? Are there are there others as I know that sort of phrase in the introduction we use was sort of millennial farmer, which might sound, you know, positive or negative depending on how you feel about it, but are there others who are working in the same way, or do you find yourself to be an outlier?
0: Oh no, I'm one of many. There's definitely loads of brilliant farmers doing incredible things. There really is you know there's there's a lot of people who are kind of looking back at the old ways basically and and changing their farms and changing their breeds to native breeds lowering their stocking density and you know there's nature led farming is having a huge revival so it's really exciting and uh instances generally where I find and chat with all those people
1: that's so ex- well that is so positive and so exciting you know, that is, that is a, is a thing you know that that is happening and do you, what do you want so what, what have you got now I'm curious about two things one how you moved your Small holding, which is obviously not quite as small as when you started <laughs> to Dorset. Yeah. How did that happen? Mid, not just Mid you lockdown. In, mid lockdown. Okay. It, w- w- it wasn't just you in a car, was it, with loads of goats? Or was it just you going I did up a few,
0: there? I did a few car journeys with goats and bees.
1: Wow.
0: Okay. Which was quite a thing. Um, at night, I wrapped all the beehives in, in duvets and sheets. Okay.
1: This is where your sculptural kind of background is coming into play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I love
0: it. Yeah. And um, literally drove. Drove the whole way, um, you know, wearing a B suit for, for one leg, which is a six hour journey. Oh
1: God, I would love to have, like, managed to sort of know somebody had seen you on the motorway just going, What the? <laughs> that feels like something out of Stranger Things, you know? <laughs> You're going to the way you were dressed. <gasps> Could you hear them? Can you hear yeah, them in yeah, the car? Yeah. yeah. Was, yeah.
0: Humming, humming. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was hysterical. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, we, we moved in May in that first major lockdown, uh, which was quite stressful. You know, you had to find a family-run removal firm because everyone was in these bubbles and things like that. But it was also just so exciting, you know, opening the trailer and seeing my goats and sheep run into this unbelievable landscape. The woman who lived before us was a real nature nut and, you know, what she's kind of left us, her legacy is extraordinary here. And, you know, the goats and sheep were just frolicking.
1: That is so exciting to just have... Just have that image of... It's it's in a way counter to what you described with your pigs, where you're opening something and just watching them run out into the fields, you know, kicking their heels, literally being like... It was so
0: joyous. It was so joyous. Because I, you know... uh, I did start to run out of space in Suffolk, so it came at a really good time. You know, we had quite a difficult winter, whereas, you know, it it was starting to get a bit tricky, the whole situation. Um, We'd had, you know, beasts from the east and extreme weather. And so coming down here was a massive revival. And there's now so much space to kind of really play with these ideas and attitudes that I've slowly been developing and learning from others.
1: So how much of it is your, So, your. I mean, your vegetables that you did, you have to just leave behind your beds as well and sort of leave what was yeah, there. Yeah. So you yeah. had to start all over again with your least favourite task. Yeah, <laughs> which
0: total, <you> gonna... <laughs> total reset.
1: And how big of uh, space do you now have for growing vegetables and and fruit?
0: I've kept my, my garden quite a similar size in that it was, you know, I, I, I definitely built a big garden in Suffolk and wanted to do the same again down here. It's a different soil. So Suffolk was quite Sandy, barren soil compared to here, which is a joy to garden in because it's really easy to work and you can just add lovely compost on top. And your, whereas here it is heavy Dorset clay, so it's quite the gardening's definitely <laughs> got a bit harder, which I didn't want. But you know, it's wet here and the grass is just extraordinary. So the animals are much better for it. The gardening's going to be a bit harder.
1: And can I ask with your sort of animals and your turn of animals, so what happens if I, you know, you, you have your, I suppose, your tribe of goats, What what's their journey? What are they doing? Are you keeping them just for milk or what? what is happening to those goats? How many do you have and where do they go?
0: I've probably got 12 who are in KID at the moment, which will, you know, say half of them have twins. There's suddenly going to be quite a lot of goats running about in spring, which is just the best. I cannot wait. They're, they're the funnest things in the world, KID goats. And they are a really rare breed called the English Primitive Goat, which is they were brought over in the Neolithic period. And they're the kind of wild goats that you might see in Scotland or Wales. And so they're quite valuable as breeding goats in that they're so rare. So I tend to sell them to other breeders. And I've got a few that I've bottle fed, so are extraordinarily tame. The ones who are kind of all over my Insta. And the hope is that because they now... You know, they're as tame as my dog. You know, they run in the house. They're they're extraordinary. But I should be able to milk them
1: and you make we'll ricotta. See. Is that right? Did I see you made like proper, you had ricotta yeah, no, from your goat's do, milk? L-
0: love to do cheese making. The ricotta is not from my goat's milk. I, I've, I've only milked small bits of milk from my goats so far.
1: Okay. So um, where's the ricotta? Do you sheep's milk or are you doing cow's milk for your ricotta?
0: That's cow's milk. We've got okay. amazing dairies down here. So um, if I go to the farm shop, I just take a glass bottle and you can get fresh milk straight from the farm into your bottle that tastes amazing and it changes flavor throughout the year you know you can start to taste it changing now because the grass is you know properly growing gets sweeter and sweeter
1: i would love to talk about food and just what you're cooking because what i see on instagram makes me i'm just permanently hungry and by the way thanks to you i actually made a successful mayonnaise and if anybody is listening to this (laughs) i would just please go onto the instagram find the mayonnaise recipe in fact it became my whole family, is was my husband and two of my stepchildren. I, they what are you doing for you? I was like, I'm, gonna, I'm making some mayonnaise. And they sort of looked at me as if to say, God, this is just going to go wrong uh-huh. again. We've had so many, <laughs> so many disastrous attempts. And I made it and I knew that it was working because they all started getting like closer and closer and closer to me and then offering to help. And we took turns kind of whisking it. It was so delicious. I mean, we basically ate. I mean, there was a huge amount that we made and we basically lived off mayonnaise for about two days as a family. It was.
0: I love so- that noise it makes when you know you're doing it right. It starts oh. to kind of slap. The side yeah. Of the bowl when it's getting thick
1: oh and everybody kept tasting it and then you just start then deciding what you're going to eat in terms of what you can serve mayonnaise with so then we had like burgers and we did we fried salmon new potatoes and also um calamari we made we put mayonnaise with that it was delicious so thank you but all your food seems fantastic and clearly takes direct influence from whatever you've picked out of the ground that day or whatever is sort of in your immediate vicinity has your cooking changed a lot or was that something that was always because you talked about noble rot being so seasonally influenced was it always that after that restaurant life
0: they they definitely breeded the seasonality into me and i think As time's gone on and I've really got into nature and sustainability and kind of trying to promote that on my Insta, I think seasonality is my cardinal rule. Yeah. So I won't won't touch a courgette or a tomato unless they're preserved or tinned or whatever outside of the season. And I've really lived by that. I eat significantly less meat, you know, significantly, just once or twice a week.
1: What are you cooking tonight? What are you making tonight?
0: I was just digging in the veg garden and have loads of beetroots that have overwintered that I didn't realise were necessarily there. They were kind of hidden by some Swiss chard because they have very similar leaves. And I've got all these beautiful albino, golden and red beetroots. And I think I'm going to roast them, get lovely roasted sweet beetroots. And I've got some smoked mackerel and horseradish. It's a favourite combo of
1: Oh, them. God, that sounds delicious. Oh, I'm really hungry. Okay.
0: Slightly vinegary beetroots. They love vinegar and you get this kind of fatty fish sharp yeah. punchy horseradish and those very earthy but tart beetroots it's so good.
1: I love all those strong flavours and like the watercress with a or anything it's just that sort of that hotness in your mouth is delicious. Yeah food that has a punch is nice. Yeah really good and do you tend to sort of do you drink wine do you drink do you have that as part of your meal or are you sort of just all about the food?
0: I don't drink much in the week but yeah I love a glass of wine on the weekend for instance I definitely when I first left London and was living on my own you know I might Uh, you know i i I sometimes didn't see people for a month or two and it was quite a big change going from a very social life yeah with all my friends to being on my own really really isolated in the countryside i'm very good with solitude and often crave it and that's been my kind of struggle of lockdown is i've got all my family on top of me the whole time (laughs) where i'm used to living alone
1: (laughs) I mean, me too. Yeah, I think everybody who will be listening to this, will be going, uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: that's been a big change. But I think in the early days, you know, when I kind of was trying to learn to live alone effectively, as a young 20-something, I definitely drank a bit in the week. And I think it's been a learning curve. So I have sort of curbed that and now just enjoy the occasional tipple.
1: But I think everybody's been drinking quite a lot over the last 12 months. So there'll <laughs> yeah, be no judgment yeah. <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> what, okay, I want to ask what you, what, what would you like for the next, you know, two to three, five years? I know there's, you know, I'm sure lots of people are talking to you about lots of things. But what do you have in mind that would be your next challenge to yourself or what you would like to sort of see happen on the farm?
0: I'm pretty excited by the idea of some cows on the farm. So that's a bit of a project that's going on at the moment. And
1: will there be a particular breed? Are you looking for something unusual again?
0: Yeah, I've been speaking to this lovely lady called Lee who farms the hilltop farm one of Beatrice Potter's old farms and she has this beautiful breed called a rigget which is a kind of variation of a belted galloway where instead of the stripe being a band around them it goes along their spine and they have these beautiful kind of different mottled colors on them but they're an old old native breed that's much smaller than kind of modern meat cows so they don't impact the land in the same way and they're kind of you know, a cow is extraordinarily good for the for the soil and nature around it when it's run and the run and managed in the right way. So I'm looking into finding them, and they're properly rare. So you get quite good grants for kind of helping rare breeds like that.
1: How many would you start with? What's a good starting herd of cows? I think
0: just two or three. Okay. I'm going to go small. If you come
1: back with seventeen, then you know yeah. <laughs> you're
0: going to be in trouble. I've learned my lesson. <laughs> but the, the the key to farming is just not having too many animals. You know, the minute you have too many, they start to become a number, they start to have more and an impact on the land. I'd say and that about not... children as
1: well, you know, you should bear that in <laughs> mind for <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's not how you make money, but I sort of, you know, do that through other means and have diversified as they as farms say, you know, into Insta and in places like that. Yeah, so cows, uh, that's the next project, which I'm very excited about, but quite daunted by. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of responsibility in looking after a cow, I I feel. You know, they're huge and I've got 90,000 people watching and I've never looked after one before, nor have any experience or understanding of how to. And
1: that really is something, isn't it? Taking on something that you don't know anything about and it's sort of that... I mean, I, that was my first thought when you said, and then I had four pigs. And I thought, how, what did you, that fear of just getting it wrong and feeling so responsible for, you know, something that's really reliant on you for its safe passage through life. That's, yeah, that's not nothing. I actually
0: have 70 children. You know, I've got a lot of animals out there that rely on me every day. Um, but I like that new journey, the kind of excitement of, you know, proper learning and the risk of it all. It's very instinctive being a herdsman, you know, looking after your animals. They are... You know, they're, they're like us, they're mammals. So you can, the better you know them, the more you understand when something's wrong and what you need to do to fix it.
1: But it has to always be you, doesn't it? Seven days a week, you can't, it's not that one walks away and says, you know, I'm going to go, just gonna, well, not that one goes anywhere right now. But in the time when everything is open, I'm going to go to Paris for three days. I mean, that they are a constant responsibility and that is quite yeah, something. Yeah, that is a
0: big sacrifice that I've made. And, you know, I can't go and see my friends in London as much as I used to. And I'm tied here. You know, you can't have a day off. You can't sort of go, no, I'm not in the mood. You, know, you have to get up. And <laughs> no duvet day. go check everything's yeah. okay, and no, that no, doesn't exist.
1: But actually that pull must be very healthy in itself in that you have to get up, and so you do get up. And so you talked earlier about mental health and just sort of feeling out of balance. That is its own balance, isn't it? That sort of push-pull of... I need you to feed me. I need you to check in on me. Yeah,
0: yeah. And kind of working on your own and working for yourself is really difficult. So having that routine built into your day, Mm -hmm. I think is, you know, probably keeps me sane and on the straight and narrow as such.
1: And you have family, you said, all around, close by.
0: Yeah, kind of, (laughs) two glows. Yeah, my family are great at mucking in when needs be. And, you know, dad's been knocked over by my ram many a time. My brothers have got their lovely jeans horribly covered in all sorts
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's a good team then
0: i love working with them and you know they're very supportive and always up for getting involved
1: so cows anything else beyond the cows or is it
0: cows well this nature stuff that i was speaking about earlier you know that's really exciting and There's talks of books and things like that that I'm quite daunted by but excited by at the same time.
1: I think it would be wonderful.
0: Well, and I wanted to get into some longer form content as well, you know, do some filming and, you know, produce some real stories and things that people can learn from. And now that I'm down here and have this much more land, I've got this much more food to sell. So I'm quite interested in opening that up to people online and maybe doing a kind of small holder day where you come down and learn how to look after sheep, you know, and have a big lunch together and take home some lamb or something like that. Oh,
1: I love that idea. Okay. Yeah. Well, when you do that, that would be me and my five children and my husband and I coming another large yeah, von, yeah, no, von Trapp family <laughs> descending.
0: A <laughs> you know, big long table in the fields. Oh, kind of really, because I think you know, I'm extraordinarily lucky this year, uh, more, more so than ever. I really do want to share that and allow people to get a taste because it's so special.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, that is such a lovely note to end on. I We're, we're nearly out of time actually anyway, but we do have a sort of quick fire round before you go, which um, questions that we ask all podcast guests. So I'm going to just run through these. Some of these may apply, some of them may not apply and you can skip if you need. So, OK, this is very, This I made it sound very intimidating. It's not. Here we go. Describe your perfect cup of tea.
0: I've got really into green tea recently. So something very light, quite springy, meadow grassy, tree mossy, creamy, that kind of thing.
1: Oh, God, the Fortnum's buyer is all over this. They must love that. Okay, what's your most joyful memory when it comes to a meal?
0: I was once in Florence on my own for a week and just spent the whole week eating at all the different restaurants. And I went to this little trattoria and they were the friendliest people in the world And I just kind of said, you know, you know better than me what I should have. And they brought me deep fried courgette flowers, rabbits, the best tiramisu I've ever eaten. They just had a jug of wine on the table that was completely free. We sat drinking Vinsanto together afterwards and it was so special. I'll never forget it.
1: Oh, that sounds amazing. Is Italian food one of your sort of favourite cuisines?
0: Yeah, that's where my heart is. If I could ever kind of move the small holding to Italy, that would be my dream. (sighs) That yeah, they do have some. Amazing I think they just live and holdings. breathe it. They yeah. live and breathe food, and I love that attitude, where it's such an important part of their life.
1: I do. and they have some amazing things that I've never heard of. There's something called an alioli, I think, which is a mix between garlic and onion. Have you heard of this? it's so good I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to email you and hook you up with some halionine but it is um, you chop it incredibly fine you cook it in quite a lot of olive oil very gently until it almost sort of melts into the olive oil and you add it to tomato like a, a marinara but without basil and garlic because it's almost already got that garlic and it's got this incredible taste I've only ever had it I think in Umbria but what I love about Italy is it's so region to region they have their sort of very specific varietals and they're very protective of them which is what is so wonderful
0: yeah, I mean, village to village recipes can kind of yeah. be so individual. It's extraordinary.
1: And they all claim that theirs is the best, which I love. <laughs> of
0: course.
1: <laughs> There's no false modesty. They're like, no, 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 no it's this. Peachy no. is, can only be used. And they'll to this
0: fight way. you to the death yeah.
1: it as well. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, what food or drink do you wish you'd invented?
0: That is really difficult. I, I'm really into sake. I think it's Ooh, so yeah, clean it's and crisp and cold. So and you I
1: like think... cold sake? I was going to ask cold on Yeah, or yeah cold me too. Sake.
0: And then in terms of food, what's the cleverest thing? I mean, I'm, again, we'll go down the Italian route, but things like aubergine parmesan, you know, oh. these layers of extraordinary different things that get slowly cooked in the oven and meld together and become one, the harmony of it, you know, that kind of cooking.
1: I, I love I, that. I, I, I think it's, it's genius. Immensely. Yeah, delicious. And so labour intensive. I'm so happy that my husband, in my case, does it, not me, because that's a lot <laughs> of frying of aubergine. Okay, yeah. what's been your biggest disaster in the kitchen?
0: I one of the ways I paid my way in the early days of moving to the farm was I did a lot of private catering for my parents' friends and family and all sorts. And I took on quite a big job that was more people than I'd ever done and over three days. And I was making these pear and frangipani tarts. I was putting them out of the oven, they were looking beautiful, and I pulled one out and my tea towel had a hole in it and I Burnt my hand so badly and dropped this beautiful pear of French piney on the floor and it just shattered into all these pieces and I sat there leaning against the oven nibbling away kind of thinking what on earth am I going to do luckily I managed to fill them up so much with everything beforehand that they only wanted tiny slivers of the tart that (laughs) survived
1: (laughs) oh no also the third Mm. degree burns not exactly fun
0: no but it's a good one to learn it'll never happen again
1: no yeah you'll always check your details for holes um what music do you listen to when you cook at home I'm more of a podcaster, if I'm oh, honest, when okay. I'm
0: cooking. I find music quite distracting because I'm always trying to, you know, then pick the next perfect song. Whereas something about podcasts, you just put it on yeah. and leave, leave it be. Yeah. Um, but in terms of music, I really love modern classical. There's this guy, Sebastian Paleno, that I'm totally obsessed with. Okay.
1: Oh, I love this. I get such good recommendations from this podcast. Okay, great. Um, what are the three ingredients you think of as essential store cupboard items?
0: What do I always have in my cupboard? I always have garlic. I always have onions. What else do I have? And eggs. Eggs, yeah. You've always got a meal when you've got an egg. Yeah, you my grandmother always said that. You have bit of yeah. greens from the garden or whatever it may be, a lovely spinach soup. You put an egg on top and it becomes a meal.
1: I love eggs. you know, the other day we made risotto at home and then the next day we had lots of leftover risotto. So we heated it up and then we just fried an egg and put it on top of the risotto. And it's just like when you cut into it and the egg, it just immediately, it feels decadent, doesn't it? When you put a fried egg on something. (laughs)
0: Yeah, no, i mean the, my chickens have all just started laying again after they, they go a bit slowly over winter to kind of live i saw you jealous.
1: have an incredible haul i was very jealous all those beautiful yes. colors yeah so
0: i'm now back on to an egg or two a day which feels very good indeed <laughs> very glad there's this hysterical moment i have to tell this story but with goats they need copper as part of their diet it's oh. just something they really need. Okay. And so I used to feed them this goat food that would have copper in. My chickens used to always go around the field and kind of clean up after them. And their yolks started going green from the copper. Oh I had really? Green yolks for months and I had no idea why. And then eventually managed to realise that it was because of the copper goat food.
1: And wait, you would you'd happily eat them, but you were just like, <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah, it they seem to exactly the They're
0: just green. <laughs>
1: I have to confess, if I cracked open an egg and there was a green yolk, I would just think, okay, well, something's been exposed to some level of radiation that I I need to call the health inspector. I love love that you've got kind of Dyson-like chickens working around your farm outside and in. Well look, that is it for today, Julius. I cannot thank you enough on probably the first really truly sunny day of the year for agreeing to sit inside and talk to me for an hour. Absolutely
0: It's been a joy. I'm so
1: impressed by what you're doing. And please stay in touch with us because I really want you to do these videos. I would be the first person in line to come and have an education on a small holding. And definitely if you're going to be cooking for me, <laughs> I would be there. Well yeah,
0: and you're more than welcome to pop down and come meet everyone.
1: Oh well thank you so much and good luck with absolutely everything that you have going on. It sounds truly amazing all the best and huge thanks of course to you as well for tuning in if you haven't already do let us know if you're enjoying the Hungry Minds series so far by kindly leaving us a rating and a review remember you can also subscribe to Fortnum's Hungry Minds wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes we'll be sitting down with more brilliant guests for fascinating conversations ranging from food and drink through to arts and culture